Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we're learning about a unique trajectory into the world of habitat restoration and what it means to become an accidental botanist. Joining us to talk about this is Jeff Talbert, who is running the restoration program at Deer Lake in the Panhandle of Florida through the Atlanta Botanic Garden. Jeff is an amazing human being. He's a dedicated restorationist, and he's doing incredibly important work in one of the most biodiverse regions of North America. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but it is a fantastic conversation that just goes to show you how little you can predict in life. Before I get to that, I just want to say, if you are enjoying the show and you want to support it, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. We got a lot of great kickbacks over there. Just go check it out and realize that I couldn't be doing the show without the support of my patrons each and every month. So thank you to them and thank you for considering it. But that's entirely enough out of me. On with the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jeff Talbert. I hope you enjoy. Right, Jeff Talbert, welcome to the podcast, buddy. It has been a long time in the making, but if anyone doesn't know who you are, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about what it is you do. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be on here. And um, my name is Jeff Talbert. I work for the Atlanta Botanical Garden. I am the project coordinator for a grant that we have going on down here in Florida at Deer Lake State Park. And I basically... Uh, coordinate all the parties. Um, we work in partnership with the Florida State Parks um, on the grant, and so they do the operational side. And we do the sciency uh, coordination side, and um, uh, yeah, I just bring all the parties together and make sure the project runs runs smoothly. Yeah, and having been to the site, having seen all the things you get to do, that's not an easy job on some days, I'm sure. No, it, it can be difficult. A lot of it is uh, um, is equipment. We have a lot, a lot of equipment issues. We're using <laughs> excavators and track loaders and in situations where they're not really meant to be hmm. uh, deep in wetlands and in the muck and, and pulling out tie tie trees and all that stuff. So we end up with a lot of broken hoses. <laughs> uh, we have a tractor that has a wiring harness where the uh, one of the plugs ripped out. So we got to replace the whole wiring harness. So it's it's all, it's all a lot of stuff like that. And then, you know, trying to coordinate where we're going to, um, where we're going to clear next and make sure we're, you know, on track to finish. So, yeah, well, it's a fascinating suite of skills you have to bring to the table on any given day, let alone over the course of a year. And then also, you know, have to report back and make progress on top of it all. But was this always in the cars for you? I mean, where did this sort of adventure begin? Rumor has it, it didn't start with plants or restoration. <laughs> Uh, no, it didn't. Um, ever since I was a little kid, uh, I've always loved reading, uh, books about Florida and I've loved being outside and, you know, being among the, the plants and animals and in, in the various environments that I've lived in. And it was always something I just kind of kept in the back of my mind that I, that I really liked and wanted to do. And, um, uh, I went to college and got a degree in political science and was going to, I don't hmm. know, do politics stuff. It was, it was fascinating to me. Uh, it's gotten much less so. <laughs> as the years. A, little, a little gnarly, <laughs> yeah. you could um, say. And then, uh, and then um, I actually was trying to to coach football. So I, uh, during my undergrad, I worked for Coach Bowden down over at uh, Florida State University. 
And I did that for five years during my undergrad. <clears throat> and then I went to uh, Weber International University down in Lake Wales as a graduate assistant, and which was great because I got my master's degree paid for. Sweet. And all I had to do was coach football. And I was going to do that anyways. <laughs> nice. So, um, but I, during the course of that, I started, sort of started, um, uh, watching, you know, swallowtail kites, like feed along the top of the orange groves. And, hmm. uh, you know, there was, uh, kestrels that were outside the office and, and indigo snakes and all this neat stuff along this scrub ridge. And I realized I was watching those more than I was watching my players. So <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> like, you know, I think it, it might be time for a change. And, uh, uh, also, you know. It's not, it's not exactly the best idea to hinge your future on 18 year old males sometimes. So <laughs> that, that's a lot of moving around. Um, Hadn't which I thought about it that way, but <laughs> uh, well, I had, a, I knew a lot of coaches that, um, you know, moved to schools a lot. They moved, they moved to different mm, places a lot. Yeah. And so every couple of years and I, I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to stay in Florida as much as I could. So, um, so yeah, I made a, I made a decision to get out got my degree paid for and then got out and, Dang. Um, figured the best way for me to get um, to do what I wanted to do and where I wanted to do it was uh, try to join up with the Florida Park Service because they had all these nice state parks. Mm. They did all these nice interpretive programs where they talk to people and you get to, you know, work with prescribed fire and shorebirds and sea turtles and nice. gopher tortoises and all these neat things. And so I figured, you know, let's try to get into that. It, it was hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so that's sort of how I, how I kind of came around to be where I'm at. So, uh, I've never really had any cards. I've just kind of taken it as, as it comes. And I'm sometimes I'm very surprised at where I ended up and how I ended up here. Yeah, dude. I mean, it's one of those things that you hear a lot of stores doing what I do and you definitely have one of the more unique trajectories of anyone I've talked to. I mean, usually it's something tangential, at least in the sciences, but to start off as a football coach, and work your way into this route is fascinating. But yeah, I mean, I love those stories because I often get questions that ask for the recipe for success. How do you do this? And I, regardless of where you start off, understand that there is no really, there is no recipe. And, and you are, proof is in the pudding as to how different a path can take you, you know, even from just looking outside your window and realizing you liked what was going on out there, let alone the, the sort of course you had already set up for yourself. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and I do hear it a lot. I heard a lot more when I was at the state parks, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, I would love to do this, you know, it'd be so great. I would love to do it. And I was like, what's stopping you? Yeah. Hey, you know, what's stopping you? You got to just go, if you want to go do it, go try to do it. You know, it's, it took me, geez, two, roughly two years to find a job in the park service. I interviewed from long key down in the keys, Dang. Uh, down um, in, in Polk County. I mean, I interviewed all the St. George Island. I interviewed all over the state for, for jobs and um, everybody was really great. Uh, but nobody, <laughs> nobody would hire me um, until I got up here. And I actually ended up volunteering at, at Grayton Beach for a whole hmm. month. And uh, they decided that um, maybe I had what they were looking for. <laughs> nice. So, you know, I was, able, I was finally able to finally able to break in. And then once I, once I got in, that was where I was sort of kind of able to make it what I wanted it to be where, yeah. uh, you know, cause there's a lot of being a park ranger, especially when you first start is, you know, fix of electricity and campgrounds and <laughs> park gas and, and all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to do, uh, more than that. So I, I, luckily I had a boss that allowed that, but I also, 
I joined in when our shorebird techs came and did uh, shorebird work on the beach. I got involved with the uh, uh, sea turtles uh, nesting and you know during nesting season and uh, restoration efforts that they were doing and anything that I could stick my nose into, right. I did. And I sort of started building all these kind of skill sets to, you know, utilize um, later on, which yeah. I am now. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it all kind of, it makes sense post hoc, right? But like in the moment, it's just following whatever interest or intrigue and of course what's allowed in that moment. But it just, it, it it's a really good reminder, again, to think that there is no right or wrong way to do it. Obviously stay out of jail or something like that, but also, you know, follow your intrigue and interest and and just persevere. I mean, that to me is one of the biggest things is like those opportunities aren't guaranteed, but if you, you keep with it, at least at some point, something's going to stick. That's right. That's, uh, that's really kind of the, kind of the recipe that I followed. It was, um, I just wanted to do as much as I can and, and be outside as much as I can. I mean, I, if you'd have told me, you know, 15, 20 years ago that I get paid to set the woods on fire, that was <laughs> like, that would have laughed at you. <laughs> uh, I love it because, you know, the more we know each other, it's like you offer so many great stories of like how nervous people can be when they're burning and how crazy it can get when you've got million dollar homes right over the fence line. But also just, again, the story of how you got to where you are is just keep trying and, and follow your passions. But you know, this idea of you kind of learning these different skill sets along the way, that's the other part that's fascinating is, you know, people think, oh, it got to specialize, got to get in, it's got to be botany and it's get, you got to pick a family or maybe a genre and, and go with one of those things and stick with it. But like when you back out and look at like what the day to day operations really are in a lot of these positions, it is trying to amass a lot of different weirdly unrelated, but also related skill sets that can really make or break a project or a grant, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I I think that's one thing that uh, that that's actually I think helped me in in doing this is that I I don't have a specific um, you know um, what what's the word I'm looking for I don't, I don't have a specific thing that that I know completely about where I went to school for one specific thing or I, I'm do, I've done one specific thing I bring sort of this large umbrella where uh, I mean. I don't know it all for sure. Sure, and <laughs> no one I, does. I love the fact that I'm surrounded. I mean, at the at the garden in the department, our conservation resource department, we have so many smart people. <laughs> yeah, you know? and I, I it's it's mind blowing sometimes being around some of these folks because you know I I pick up so much, um, but also I can bring a, a a you know a point of view or a perspective that might be a little bit different. That might I, I arrive to things in a much different way than right. a lot of a lot of people that are uh, highly specialized in, in a specific area. And I think that's actually helped a lot. Yeah. I mean, when you think about the world of ecology and restoration, rehabilitation, that sort of stuff, it really takes a lot of different skill sets to make it work. And not every specialist is going to have a broad skill set that's going to apply to project management per se. Like a lot of people I meet in academia go, well, I went into this to do research, not to advise people. And now I'm a research advisor and that's, it's difficult a lot of the times, but coming in with a multitude of different experiences, I, I, I can't think of a, a better sort of trial by fire experience to get you to where you are today. Yeah, it was um, one, one of the best jobs that I had um, prior to this was, was at Top Sale. And I, I went over there as a resource management park service specialist and the job was so varied. It was, I did anything resource management related because yeah. there was nobody in the park that did it so the rangers did all the you know handle all the the campground stuff and the guests and the interp stuff 
and then i mean i i did i mean everything <laughs> whatever i could and uh and protecting the resources at, at that park um from prescribed burning to you know i instituted like my own restoration project based on the one that i'm working on now because it had uh sort of gotten off the ground a little bit mm. prior to my getting there and so uh, i took some of what i knew from that and like and started <laughs> restoring wetlands over at top sale just kind of on my own nice you know yeah so but i mean that's the beautiful thing about restoration ecology natural resource management is it, it isn't really focused on one single thing it's it's that holistic view it's all the pieces all the players in a system and trying to get your head wrapped around that like you would lose a lot trying to focus on okay now i got to think of this thing or this thing over here in in an absurd detail it's like taking that step back we need both right we need reductionism but we also need that big picture view and i'm imagine that it's it, it just becomes a matter of scaling at that point is, is okay how do we start to divide and conquer depending on what size area you're looking at yeah that's true um what also helps too is if you've worked with the the bureaucracy of state government <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's that too is is navigating people and politics and bureaucracy is that's a skill unto itself yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm lucky that I, I picked it up, you know, having come from the Park Service and then over to, you know, the, this side of the project with uh, ABG is is that, you know, I'm able to help us better navigate that a little yeah. bit better. It's, you know, s since the state does the operational side, you know, all the purchasing of equipment and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff goes through them and their rules are it's. <laughs> it's a pain sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of waiting. It's a lot of waiting for stuff to get approved and having to get bids and all that stuff. Sure. So that, uh, but being able to help navigate that and being dedicated on this project so that the, you know, the biologists at the, at the state parks, you know, don't necessarily have to do at nearly as much. They can focus on other areas because they know that, I mean, I've worked with them. I know the drill, I know what's going on. And right. so, um, it's, it's helped a lot, but navigating that has been, has been a challenge for sure. Yeah. I'm sure there's a few gray hairs just from that <laughs> element yeah, of the job, but you know, I, I think you also are a people person, like you're a very personable dude and you get along well and, and you, you seem to be able to take sort of the, not the higher ground, I guess that's, that's painting it in sort of a cynical view, but you seem to work with people well and that, that helps too. And you know, I think of my buddy Jared up in Michigan doing natural resources management. He says 90% of the job is, is people management. You know, it's it's letting the people do the jobs that they're hired to do, but you got to be able to navigate that in the first place. And, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of colleagues don't necessarily come in with that skill set. <laughs> that, that is true. Uh, and I, I think that my background um, has, in working with a, a a very diverse group of people yeah um has has helped that a lot um you know so that's just kind of who i am right right <laughs> who i've been growing up but uh <laughs> but yeah I, working with a with a diverse group of people um has has helped that a lot because i can i can bridge a lot of gaps and right. communicate with a lot of different with a lot of different types of people so yeah but yeah i do a lot of i do a lot of listening <laughs> <laughs> head nodding yes mm -hmm. i do a lot of listening mm -hmm. yeah mm-hmm that's good though. That's a skill set. Trust me. It's uh, sometimes hard week in and week out to listen to people, but it, you got to do it. Yeah. It's like, um, I don't know. Maybe I should have been a therapist. That's yeah. what I think sometimes. <laughs> You're a therapist, but for nature and ecology. Right. Yeah. Right. So, therapist for plants. 
thinking about that, I mean, when you started to really get into the thick of it, managing projects, looking at wetland restoration, or really just ecosystem restoration in general, what would you say, especially coming from the way you came at it, um, was sort of the trial by fire? What what really did you have to come up against to, to start learning more of the ecosystem side of things? Uh, was it really a focus on plants that helped you, or was it just kind of picking those organisms that really stood out and figuring out where they fit in? Um, I'll tell you one thing that stands out that really helps was uh, when I got the job over at Top Sale to do resource management stuff, we had a biologist here with the Florida State Parks. Her name was Tova Spector, and uh, she um, was a was a botanist. She loved plants, and she, she came over to we when she came over to Deer Lake, I worked at Grayton Beach, which also managed Deer Lake. And this was right before I left. <clears throat> and she taught me how to key plants. Nice. Um, and I've always liked Rexia. That's always been one of my favorites. <laughs> Solid choice. And yeah. And um, we have we have a bunch of different species of Rexia. And I had noticed, you know, just being around out in the park that I, I had noticed uh, several of them. And uh, she was she was very interested in a specific one, the salicifolia, which is endemic to here. Hmm. And uh, and so she wanted me to be able to identify it if I came across it. So she taught me how to key out Rexia species. Nice. And so that's what we did in a couple afternoons. And then when I finally went over to Top Sail, we did the same thing. Um, and we were in a wet prairie. It's just south of the hospital over there at Top Sail. And she found uh, Pinguicula lutea. Nice. And it was raining and she went nuts like <laughs> crazy just was so happy to find it she was dancing around like it was like it was the greatest thing and <laughs> i looked at that i was like that's a lot of passion for you know for finding something like that out here and so i've sort of tried to like keep that you know and that's that really kind of helped me a lot because uh i started paying attention to much smaller stuff nice. um and um you know characteristics and stuff like that of, of the stuff I was looking for to help. Um, cause I mean, I wanted to find, I wanted to find something that, that they didn't know about. And, uh, and I've done that. A That's times awesome. Now. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you start to realize how even among plant affinitive people, the small stuff often goes unnoticed or at least is easier to miss. I mean, just based on size alone, let alone attention span. And, and oftentimes when we're talking about like biodiversity and especially in a hot spot where you're at down on the panhandle is they're pretty restricted. They have a hard time getting around. They easily get trampled. I mean, there's a lot of onslaughts that, you know, say a tree doesn't necessarily have to face in its day-to-day operations. Yeah, uh, that's, that is true. Um, we, we do have, we have some of the best wetlands, you know, around uh, down here and uh, our county, I think is, it's one of the fastest growing counties in Florida. Dang. I mean, it's just the the amount of development here is just at a, a huge. It's just at an unbelievable pace. I mean, I, it's 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 hard to believe sometimes, but um, you know, we have in the area that we work down there in South Walton, like forty six ish, forty one, somewhere around somewhere around forty percent of the land down there is in conservation through state parks and the state forest down there, and hmm. so um, and a lot of that is, I mean, most of that area down there along the coast most of it is wetland right and most of that drains into these rare coastal dune lakes and um you know the fact that we the fact that we get to you know <laughs> restore them and protect them is is mind-boggling and some of this i mean we have some amazing stuff out there honestly yeah it's gorgeous if no one's been they need to go but 
they're unique in a big way. And I mean, we're talking globally unique habitats. You mentioned sort of dune lakes and, and deer lake being one of the biggest, if not the largest in the region. Uh, very special. So talk to us a little bit about this site in particular. I mean, what's it all about? Um, so coastal dune lakes occur just in a very small handful of places throughout the world. Uh, there's some, I think, in Madagascar. There's some in Australia. Um, I I want to say there's some along the Oregon coast, too. Um hmm. But even in those small areas uh, here in Walton County in the Panhandle, uh, our our dune lakes are unique among those in that they regularly open up to the larger body of water. So uh, rain will fall in the woods, soaks in the wetlands, water comes down the streams, goes into the dune lake, the basin fills up and there's a berm uh, out on the beach. um, And when the water gets high enough or if there's like a north wind or you know, heavy surf, that berm will break and then the lake will actually drain out into the Gulf of Mexico. Huh. Um, so our wetlands here, and besides being, you know, very biodiverse and very important, um, they are also a, a direct link right into the Gulf of Mexico. So they are dumping, they will, will dump their water right into the, into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, people come down and they see this brown, you know, tannin stained water going into this nice uh, nice uh, emerald green water out here in the Gulf. And they're like, Oh, it's so dirty, but like <laughs> you got some clean water coming out there. Um, but it's very important because it's, like I said, it's a, it is a direct link. Um, and it's important for, you know, you know, songbirds that come in from, uh, migration and, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of things all the way down, um, the food chain. So, um, it's a very unique ecosystem. I lived in Florida my whole life, you know, I'm from central Florida mm-hmm. and I had never heard about anything about this, <laughs> Yeah, I'm talking up here. I had I had no idea, but it's it's a very very unique uh, situation we got here, um, and luckily we've gotten some really good protections for them too. There's a bunch yeah. of them that are in state parks, so um, you know, really protecting them is is very important. So, yeah, it's amazing to see again. I I highly recommend people go and visit and take advantage of the protections to go and actually see what these ecosystems can look like. But you know, when you came onto the project, it it looks great, especially if you're not used to what these ecosystems kind of look like, but I'm sure you're not doing restoration because everything's pristine and happy and healthy, right? Like, so when you came onto the project, what kind of stuff are you facing? I mean, what are some of the bigger threats this ecosystem is really up against? Um, well, the, the biggest thing has been, uh, fire exclusion. Mm. Um, the lands, especially the lands that are now held by the state with the, with you know, in, in conservation to the state parks and state forest, those were all almost all civic culture lands owned by the St. Joe Paper Company. Ah. And so, you know, they raised pine trees, put them in rows and harvested them and, and they did naval stores and stuff out there, too. But, you know, ecosystem management wasn't on the menu for that. It was pine trees was on the menu <laughs> right. and some and so um, <laughs> wetlands were not a big they didn't they didn't think about wetlands, you know, like there was no uh, burning them regularly. They, it was just they planted the trees up to the edge of them and that was it. Mm. And so they kept fire out because fire, you know, is not um, it's not exactly the best for planted pines and pine, pine plantations. Um, you know, there's a whole there's a whole uh, problem with with all of that. And sure. um, especially when you're doing uh, like turpentining, too. Because you open up the side of that tree, and that pine pitch is very flammable, so <laughs> it could kill tree, and it would, it would, you know, that's that's dollars that goes away. And so, um, it, you know, roughly, I don't know, 70, 80 ish years of, of fire exclusion um, in these wetlands um, is has led to uh, hardwood takeover. Um, uh, 
we have a native uh, shrub down here, Tai Tai, uh, Cliftonia, um, that uh, grows into tree size if it's not kept in check, if it's out of balance. Mm. And so what ends up happening is it, it starts to shade out the wetlands, the wiregrass goes away, all the pinguicula and the saracenia and all the orchids and everything else, they all start getting shaded out. Um, and I'll tell you, saracenia dies a very slow death. <laughs> Some of that stuff hangs on in these areas for oh. a very long time, just not healthy. You know, they won't yeah. put up pictures, they won't flower, but they'll have those winter leaves like, you know, year round for years Dang. and they just sort of slowly kind of go away. Um, and so that's, uh, that, that's really kind of how we got here is that it's just a lot of fire exclusion. And then when the state got the land, uh, prescribed burning every two to four years is great. They return fire back to these lands, which is awesome. However, uplands are very easy to restore using fire. Right. Um, you have these nice sand hills. You have long leaves that are kind of mixed in, turkey oaks, all that kind of upland system. Burning through there it will, you know, the wire grass comes back. Everything starts to look really good. But you start, you get very limited on your wetlands because wetlands only burn, you know, at when the conditions are correct. And sometimes that's mm. very dangerous to do because it's very dry uh or you know right at the beginning of spring when everything's got their oils coming up and they're is extremely flammable um then you got to worry about houses and road <laughs> where you put your smoke and the winds and all that kind of stuff so you, you really start to like narrow that window down and in order to really kind of effectively run fire through there you really got to slam it in there and that's just it's not ideal yeah uh, especially if it's on my burn number <laughs> <laughs> right so, right so it's it's very difficult to to you know restore them doing that and so um this I, the idea for this project was actually was born out of that was that we needed to go in and take those hardwoods out mm. remove that biomass out of the wetland um in the upland somewhere chip it get it off site so we didn't put nutrients back in the system and huh. then run fire back through uh in in through these wetlands and it's been highly successful thus far we've we've seen a lot of change out there a lot yeah, I remember the first time we visited you at that site, it was it was kind of a, a period of discovery. You had opened up a new area. There were pitcher plants, you know, making pitchers for the first time. There was Drosera that you had not seen there. And then the fever tree. I mean, that was my first introduction to like, oh, that's a that exists. Holy crap. And yeah. that was one of those things that like had that progressed further into disarray so to speak uh that could have winked out over time and no one might not have even known it was there uh that's one of those ones that i found that we didn't know was out there <laughs> yes <laughs> nice um yeah that's that is exactly exactly right um it's a lot of it is a very like i said a very slow death and so um it, the pictures are really funny because once you once you remove the tie tie and you get sunlight back in there they almost don't know what to do and they <laughs> it's you'll see them like put up you know they'll put up like weird looking like flowers you know almost yeah. immediately uh they'll sometimes start putting up pictures almost immediately and it'll be like the middle of winter <laughs> and so like you know it takes them a season or two to to kind of um get their equilibrium back but um that, that's what i like to tell people that we're doing out there is that we're not trying to get rid of the tai tai the tai tai is a native species that's, right. that occurs in that landscape uh we're just trying to help restore that balance trying to be as as natural as we can, even though we're using machinery to pull that stuff out of there. Um, we're trying to do it as, as natural as possible. Like we're not using herbicides on anything. We're not trying to hmm. kill anything off. Uh, we want it to die. We want to do want some of it to die, but <laughs> right. not a lot of it. We don't want to put anything excess into the system. We just kind of want to do it as naturally as we can. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating project because I think it really showcases the nuances of this sort of work. And I think it's easy for the general public or people that aren't in this field, at least, to get fired up because they want to treat it as this black and white issue. Non-native is bad. Native is good. Don't mess with that dynamic or even any sort of heavy lifting or, or ripping out is is already seen as disturbance. But I, you're you're working in a system that... You know, the ideal case would not let it get to that point, but unfortunately it is. And and now you have this interesting conundrum of like, okay, we have to do some work on native stuff. Some of the native stuff has to die in order for, you know, the more diverse set of natives that can't live with it uh, to to work their way in there. I, I just love that there is a ton of nuance to what you're doing and people like you are are much better situated to tell that nuanced story because you're in it every day of your life almost. Yep. Yep. It is. It is very nuanced. I mean, we're just trying to we're just trying to bring that that balance back to to everything. Um, it's. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nuance, man. It's it's tricky these days. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the burning thing, because to me, you know, learning as a as a childhood sort of pyromaniac myself of of, hey, I can use fire for good. This is incredible. Like who wouldn't jump at that opportunity? But it is something you really have to do right and you have to be careful and you have to plan and be ready. But you, more than a lot of other people I know who get to have the the luxury of multi-hundred acre industrial farm fields all around them, you are surrounded by multi-million dollar homes. And the loss of anyone's home to an aberrant fire is a tragedy. But boy, when I think of the lawyers those people must have on their side, uh, you you probably have to go into every burn a little nervous. Uh. A little bit. It's a little, <laughs> a little b-hole clenching every once in a while. Um, we, uh, but we do. We have a great crew down yeah. here, uh, and people that have been doing it a long time. I mean, this is my sixteenth burn season. Nice, you know. Um, and uh, I mean, I was a bit of a pyro too. My my dad was a my dad was the fireman when I was growing oh, up. So, perfect. You, know, you got him on yeah. speed dial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I like to joke that my you know my dad would like to put him out, and I like to set him. So. <laughs> Um, ah, youth. But yeah, it's it. There's a lot of planning that goes into it, um, and you know, like I said, we have a, a great crew down here who who understands why we do it, how we do it, what weather we're looking for, what winds we're looking for, uh, humidities and stuff. I'll tell you, you know, burning on the coast and along these coastal parks is a whole lot different than burning anywhere else. Mm. Um, we just had a crew. We just did a burn a couple weeks ago down there. We had a uh, cruise from out west, and um, you know, I think the humidity was like eighty-five or eighty-seven percent down there. You know, it was it was lighting up, no yeah. big deal. You know, like, if it's green, it burns down here. You know, <laughs> or, like out west, if it's green, it don't burn. Yeah. You know, the humidity, the humidities that they that they uh, burn on, or they would be very dangerous here. Right. <laughs> That's nuts. Very, very dangerous. So it's it's a it's definitely a whole lot different. And there's and there's a lot of uh um you know we've we've all had a lot of training and stuff. I got all my training from when I was with the state parks. They I took all their training and then left. <laughs> nice. Hey, it's but gotta they, happen, we, right? We still get the benefit because I'm still sort of there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure you know crews can come out and learn from you guys as well. But you know, I the thing that strikes me the most is like yeah, learning how to burn is one aspect of it, but you probably have had to learn a lot about vegetation even beyond what you're already curious about to make this an effective tool in your toolbox of restoration, right? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, and and the getting to you know try to get help people understand that uh, fire is a necessity in these in these areas. Yeah. Uh, you know, even with with something as simple as wiregrass, I mean, you can look at. Um, you know, for a long time they do a lot. They did a lot of winter burns here. They burned over the winter time, and you know, you get to the growing season, and the you know you don't get any seed heads off of the wiregrass. The wiregrass just doesn't go to seed. Uh, it's not until you start burning it, you know, in March, April, uh, May, into the growing season that you get this huge influx of seeding all wow. the way. Through. You know, you get all these seed heads and flowers all the way through the through this landscape. Um, and we've been lucky enough because we bring a lot of people out there to look at the project and that you can see, you know, immediately. That's something that you can immediately point out as, right. as uh, you know, what is going on out there and uh, why is necessary. Um, and, you know, you got to get to keep the, you got to keep the shrubs down. Yeah. The shading. Yeah. These plants love sun for some reason. Yeah. Silly photosynthesis, uh, physics yeah. or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. So one of the things that really struck me and, and made me chuckle is I, I heard you on your buddy's podcast recently. Uh, you were talking about your sort of upbringing and, and trajectory. You go into a lot more detail. So shout it out so people can go listen to that if you're curious to learn more. Um, but you called yourself an accidental botanist. And, and that made me chuckle out loud, quite literally, LOL. Um, but yeah, shout out your buddy's podcast. But let's let's talk about that a little bit more. So you know, you're in this position, you, you like nature in general, but this job has you, it sounds like focusing more and more on plants and, and having to become, you know, your, your colleague there that's really excited about Rexy or really excited about Pinguicula. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I was just recently on the, uh, the EEARSS podcast, but my buddy alligator Rob, he was, um, just a quick story. We grew up together, went to nice. high school together. Uh, he's in, he does reptiles and reptile removal and alligators and snakes. That's why he's called alligator Rob. Hmm. A few years ago, they had an alligator in a park in Chicago (laughs) in the lake there. And they tried to get somebody to come in, couldn't get it. So they called an expert from Florida who was alligator Rob, wrangled the alligator, got him out of there. It was, it was spectacular. So he's now a big deal in Chicago. Very, very big deal. Yeah, there's a lot of cool things about Chicago, but knowing how to deal with alligators is not one of them. <laughs> that is true. It was very much out of place. So, and the alligator, they named it uh, Chance the Snapper. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and Chance now lives at the uh, alligator farm in St. Augustine. Good. Happy ending. So, yeah. Still alive, still kicking it. Much likes it much better. <laughs> yeah. Probably a bit better climate for him, especially this time of year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I do. I, li- I like to say that I'm an accidental botanist, um, and that, that goes back to um, you know kind of how I how I got into uh, into doing this um, and working with Land Botanical, and uh, you know working basically solely with with plants. Like I said, my job at Top Sale was varied. I did a lot of different a lot of different stuff, but now I focus solely on uh, this restoration, which is mm. you know ecosystem focused, but it's for the plants. We're looking to restore these wetlands for these rare and endangered and special plants and even the non-rare and sure. endangered ones too, just the grasses and whatever else is in there come join us uh, but yeah and having to learn uh basically kind of a whole new language <laughs> yeah. you know as it comes in as it, as it comes with with uh with you know being a botany and having to there's a lot of vocabulary you got to learn oh yeah yeah and and relearn and relearn especially if there's yeah. any seasons where you live because you're like ah, i forgot what retros means because it's been a year 
I spend a lot of time doing this in the book, looking for <laughs> looking for the through the index. What is that? And then it'll refer you to another one that you have to figure yeah. out. It's it's uh it's it's challenging, but it's also it's kind of fun. It's it's yeah. uh, exercise for your brain. But uh, I've I've learned a whole lot, and uh, I've learned a lot of uh, scientific names that I never would have <laughs> whatever would have guessed I would have. So um, it's been it's been fun, um, and I'll be honest. Uh, you know, I I did this work, and I work in a very specific set of uh an area uh, you know those wetlands with a specific set of plants with the pitcher plants and all that stuff that's down there uh and then i moved north about 30 miles inland uh, where my house is at and i was so excited i was like man i'm gonna pull permits and i'm gonna burn this and it's gonna be fire grass <laughs> long leaf and i get here and it's a totally different animal up here <laughs> like it was hardwood trees it's a hardwood forest and i had i had to hold learn a whole new a whole new set of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You got magnolias, you got madaleas, oh, yeah. you got a whole really cool property nonetheless. But yeah, it's it's amazing. And that's one of my favorite things about Florida in general is just how very short distances can just manifest completely different sets of, of players in the system. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we we don't get much elevation here. And so our elevations... <laughs> um, I don't know how to put this. Our elevations are magnified when it comes <laughs> there you to change. So, you know, you have you have a wet prairie that's wet most of the year, grazed down to a creek. You move up six inches, that's an upland. Yeah. You know, that's that's dry most yeah. of the year. And you have a whole different suite of of plants that that uh that grow um just in that that little tiny little tiny space. So um, you know, it's I'm a little bit weird because my house is at 200 feet, Ooh. which for Florida is basically a mountain. Right. Yeah. You got views for days over there. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible, but, um, you know, it doesn't take much here to change things very drastically. Yeah. Just six, eight, 10 inches. And that's, that's a whole, that's a whole new thing. Yeah. Whole new but you know, what's, so what's cool is, is for someone that is curious and for someone that is really, truly a lifelong learner in the system, you've got so much detail to pour over and obsess over. And, and one of the things that really is amazing to see come out of that is your photography. You're a fantastic photographer doing a lot of cool time lapse on top of all of that. But, you know, would you say that like this has enhanced your photography or is your photography kind of feeding the curiosity? Like what, what way does that kind of feed into everything else you're doing? I think it, it well, it, I think it goes kind of one way in that uh, I got into photography so that I could start taking pictures of some of the neat stuff that I was seeing. So nice. uh, I got my first like DSLR camera in 2012 when I was working as a ranger at Grayton Beach. And that was because I saw neat birds or hmm. I saw neat plants or, you know, all the stuff that you couldn't get it. I had, think it was a, I don't know, that might have been the original iPhone that I had with, the, <laughs> with that camera. And, you know, that was great. But it also wasn't great, yeah. You know, <laughs> right. So it wasn't. It was. I wasn't getting the the stuff and the detail and the stuff that I wanted with that. And so um, I, I basically, uh, I bought a camera and I I taught myself how to <laughs> photography. Um, I didn't when I bought it. Uh, you know, a camera with interchangeable lenses. I go. I'm not going to use this on automatic mode. Like I'm going to figure out how to change the settings and get the look that I'm looking for. And, you know, take those pictures and um, it's it's slowly just sort of developed. And, you know, I've recently gotten into last couple of years, I've gotten into macro photography, yeah. which is which is great because I, I, I notice a lot of small details on stuff. You know, when I'm walking out there, I kind of stop and like hang out and just 
let things happen around me and uh, you know, get a good look at stuff. And so sometimes there's a lot of little details that you may not notice um, that I can, you know, now capture and I don't know, maybe look nice. Yeah, they do. <laughs> maybe it's hard. I don't know. It works. Uh, yeah. And, and my, my, my qu- next question is, is, you know, obviously um, Atlanta's got a really great social media presence, but a lot of the Atlanta Botanical Garden conservation side of it seems like they're your photos. I mean, if people are following that account, which they should, if they're not, I will put up a link. Uh, do they get a sample of Jeff Talbert photography? Uh, yeah. So you can go to um, uh, at Atlanta BG Conservation on Instagram. Uh, and that's where uh, we we actually run our own Instagram account through the conservation department. And so uh, my photos and uh, photos from all of our team that are on there and all the stuff that we're working on and all the stuff that we find neat with plants is yeah. all on there. Um, and then also you can follow me at, at Jeff Talbert Photography, which is it's a lot of plant stuff. Some of it's my dog. Yeah. my cats <laughs> uh and it's, it's a healthy like, mix <laughs> it varies i had a picture of the moon on there the yeah. other night so uh it, it varies just whatever catches happened to catch my fancy but yeah uh yeah i like taking pictures of a lot of different a lot of different stuff i got some great shots of uh some lupine today that was just now blooming oh the, excellent the diffusus was in the uplands today so i got some good great shots of that oh, sweet yeah i man i forget about diffusus it's like i hear loop and i'm like oh perennis <laughs> but yeah you guys again it's florida there's so many weird things going on so much diversity and it's often in very short spaces let alone when you start looking at landscapes like deer lake or or really that whole network of really cool cool places along the panhandle it's it truly is the forgotten ghost in a lot of ways we yeah we well we do we also have an, an endemic loop in here the uh, Westianus. Oh, did not know that one. That's cool. Yeah, and it's very similar to the Diffusus. Um, there's a there's a couple small differences, but uh, the Westianus blooms a little bit later. Okay, it, it'll cover like a whole like whole sand dunes. I mean, they'll just be like just Dang. blue across the sand dunes. So it, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. It's one of my favorite times of the year. I love it, but I also hate it because it only lasts like two weeks. <laughs> uh, so ephemeral. And you're like, oh, see you yeah, next year, bud. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, this is great. Yeah. Thanks for carry seed pods. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But you know, that's the other great thing about photography, at least for me, I don't have the heart to just be taking vouchers of plants all the time, especially if it's not for a project, like in my own time, I'm not going to kill a plant just to identify it. So for me, the macro photography especially lets me get those minute details and, and really speeds along the learning process. I mean, that's truly how I learned plants was through photography. Yeah, it has been extremely helpful um, because, uh, yeah, just like you, I don't want to, I don't want to take stuff, you know, if I don't have to. Uh, and by the time I get it to where I can work on it and look at it anyways, you know, it's, it's a lot of times it's shriveled up crispy, brown. Crispy yeah, bits. So <laughs> all the, all the identifying characteristics are gone. So, nice. um, but yeah, it's, it's helped a lot too. I have a, a large portion of my photos are diagnostic photos of, of leaf edges and, uh, you know, stems and, uh, you know, all the, all the stuff that I would need to make a, make an ID. <laughs> Then I end up usually asking somebody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I'll just ask someone who knows better than you I know do. What this is. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I know. I, I laugh at the reams of photos that are stacked up in my parents' closet, but then I'm like, oh, I just do that, but with hard drives. <laughs> yeah. I looked the other day. I got, I don't know, it's like 35,000 photos, I think. Damn. All right. I was curious because, again, that, that level of detail comes at a, a gigabyte cost. <laughs> and that's only like, 
my process is, you know, I take a ton of photos and then I, I initially, I almost always lose about half because they're blurry or, you know, for whatever reason. And then from those that I keep, I usually lose like another third to a quarter. And so <laughs> that's, I still end up with that many. Uh, it's comforting though, because again, you, you see good photography and you're like, ah, will I ever be that way? And you're like, ah, I guess my ratios aren't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's figuring out what I'm going to do with them all. That's that's the hard part. Like, what a, what what am I going to do with them all? Florida Facebook pages, man. I mean, that's a great staging ground, yeah. and and again, it reaches a larger audience there. And that's what's really cool is nowadays, if you're curious, you can join the conversation, and that's what's really great. And and you know, the key to places like Deer Lake and and what you're doing is that it doesn't happen alone. It happens with a community of people that care. And part of making people care is showing them how cool a lot of this stuff is. And so, you know, from the early days of wanting to teach football or or be a football coach to now running a restoration program of this size in a habitat that special, could you have predicted it? And then B, what are some of the like, and now like if you could go back and look at 20 year old Jeff say, dude, if you only knew this plan existed now, how different would life be? Uh, no, I couldn't have predicted it. Uh, I, I could not have. Uh, and and if I had to go back, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd tell myself anything because I think it worked <laughs> out exactly how, how it was supposed to work out. Um, my last semester at Florida State, I'm, I've always been a very independent person. Yeah. You know, I just do my, do my thing and just work out the kinks later. <laughs> and I, it worked that way with my undergrad too. I, I never saw an advisor. I just took credits Jeez, and like worked. Awesome. My, I worked, I saw what they needed for my degree and I worked towards that. So like I had all my degree credits uh, early. And so wow. like I had like two semesters to basically just take whatever I wanted. And so one of the classes I took was the environmental history of Florida. Huh. That class was fascinating. Nice. It blew my mind. It, it probably inceptioned the idea in my head <laughs> for later on about what I wanted to do. But we took field trips to like tall timbers uh, to learn about, you know, uh, prescribed burning and its effects, you know, at different intervals on the landscape. I don't even remember, man. <laughs> we did a lot of, we did a lot, took a lot of, a lot of field trips and the class was very, very fascinating. Um, and it dealt, you know, we had, uh, we talked about the, the Akawaha River and freeing Akawaha, which I remember from when I was a kid. Um, all kind of stuff like that. And uh, and honestly, I, I like I said, I think that set me on the course because I loved it. I loved every second of that. Nice. And I took that and I went, I should have been doing this the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but here you are, man. And it's an amazing place. You're doing amazing work. And, you know, it is, I'm sure long term you'll see the effects. But yeah, every time you clear something, you're moving that needle forward. And to me, discoveries like seeing the Saracenias doing weird things at weird times because they're so confused being released or, or that fever tree with its beautiful pink bracts sitting up in the, I mean, that's gotta be the best feeling in the world. It, it is really incredible. Um, and it's, it's all the more so because I, uh, you know, I started as a ranger at Grayton beach in 2008, fresh on the job, had never done this before. We were, you know, we ran deer Lake, we, um, managed deer Lake state park from Grayton beach. So I'd have to go over every morning, and open the gate. Mm. And so as part of that, I would go and ride around the woods. I'd go, uh, you know, get to know the place. I <laughs> yeah. had never been there. And so, um, I can clearly remember riding in those woods in, in the various places and seeing some of these areas, some areas I couldn't even get through because we didn't have a low water crossing or the, or the mm. tie tie 
was too dense up next to the creek and you know there was too much water you couldn't get past and i see it from 2008 until now and the landscape is unbelievably changed sweet it is so much different than it was then and the areas that i remember are have totally changed they're, they're unrecognizable you can see all the way across creeks now from uh, upland to upland i mean not even counting like you know seeing all these pitcher plants and wiregrass and orchids and all this stuff coming back in there yeah but just on a landscape level just seeing it um is it's really truly mind-blowing and it's it's been a f- phenomenal to watch that transformation and, and to be a part of it yeah that's awesome good on you man that is you just it warms my heart to hear stories like that because unfortunately too many people don't realize that until too late so kudos yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with that yeah. in mind uh if people want to find out more about you or more about deer lake and and everything abg is doing down there in general i mean you you plugged your instagram but plug it again uh tell us where to find out more about everything we talked about today yeah so you can go to uh to the website, the Land of Botanical Garden, um, and we have a conservation and research section there, um, or on Instagram at Atlanta BG Conservation um, to see all the great work that we're up to. We have we do projects all throughout the southeast, and we have a lot of great stuff going on. Yeah. And so um, it's which I've you've had some of my coworkers here on yeah. the on the podcast before. So big fan. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Good. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that's uh, we we do all kind of great stuff, and that's where you can find out about it. Um, and you can follow me at Jeff Talbot Photography. Excellent. Well, I will put up links to save everyone the trouble of having to pull over, or get out of the shower to write that down. But big question. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not the only one that listens to podcasts in the shower. <laughs> no, I'm sure you have many kindred spirits out there. All right, love it. Yeah, you get it in when you can, right? That's right. Shower your listeners tonight. Yes. Hands up. <laughs> but before I let you go, a very important question. Do you think LeClaire has a chance at the championship this year? <laughs> I want to say yes. I want to say yes. As a true Tafosi, I yes. want to say yes. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Red Bull's looking way too strong. So, yeah. hey, did you watch the Oscars last night? I didn't, no. Jean Tote, the former uh, Ferrari boss, is a uh, boyfriend of uh, Michelle Yeo. Yeah, I uh, funny, we've been on a Jackie Chan movie kick and Michelle Yeoh is one of the most amazing stunt women in his movies. And I, it was like one of those things you look her up and you're like, that's John Todd. What is fr-? they kept showing him? And I go, who is this guy? Looks like Mel Brooks sitting next to him. I, I couldn't <laughs> place his face because he was he was out of context. He wasn't out of track. Right. Yeah. You know, you don't have Michael Schumacher keeping him, <laughs> keeping that's him right. busy. Right. Yeah. Right. Ross He's Brown not, by his side. <laughs> Ah, love it. Small world. Well, hey, buddy, it's always good talking with you. I really appreciate your time. And of course, I think I speak for everyone listening that says we really appreciate the work you're doing for Florida and its incredible biodiversity. Keep it up. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. Of course. Great. All right. Well, hang in there and uh, keep burning. Will do. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. I thank Jeff for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I hope you all took some inspiration away from that. Of course, all of the relevant links for everything we talked about is in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. I can't recommend following him on Instagram enough. Jeff is an incredible photographer and you get a nice behind the scenes look at what they're doing through the Atlanta Botanical Garden Conservation page as well. Once again, all of those links are over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. While you're over there, consider supporting the show. There's a lot of different ways to do it. The best one is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, but you can also 
pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch or stickers, and all of those links are in the show notes as well. I couldn't be doing the show without support, and there's a lot of different ways of doing it, so consider supporting it today. Otherwise, hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in, but that is enough for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.